0: Yes, yes, yes. Man, thank you guys for that. That is sweet. Worship of a gloriously gracious God. How are you guys doing tonight? Okay, thank you. Fifteen people are doing good. The rest of you, really depressed. Cool. All right, let's get after it. Um, Here's what we're doing. If you are just joining us, um, or you slept through the last couple of sermons, which is possible, Um, then uh, what we're doing is we are stepping into the middle of a series called The Shape of Love, and the idea of it is that love has been misshapen, uh, sometimes inadvertently, but the idea of deep, biblical, real, um, changing love has been misshapen in our life, and and we have lost perspective, and we've lost uh, several aspects of it that we don't see, or we don't walk in, or we don't believe to be true. Um, And so this series is a look at some of those angles we've kind of missed, so the first week, we talked about how the idea that love is not an emotion, that love is not just simply this emotion that we're constantly looking for, and maybe I've fallen into it, maybe I've fallen out of it, where is it, and it's this kind of mystical unicorn that we're looking for that's all very emotionally based. It's not that. In fact, it actually uh, should have action attached to it. And if someone says that they love you, but then there's no action to back that up, well, then they don't really love you, or at least it reveals the maturity at which they love you, right? So like I could say I love tacos, right? And I could say I love my wife, but if I treat my wife the same way that I would treat my love for tacos, it would be a horrible marriage. And then she would realize, okay, when he says he loves me, he means with taco love, not with like ever, you know, everlasting, perfect harmony, constantly spooning kind of eternal love. And if someone told you, if somebody told you they loved you, uh, that's what it's like, by the way, being married, eternally spooning, just constantly spooning. It's amazing, guys. It's amazing. Uh, if, if someone has told you they love you and not backed it up, or maybe somebody didn't tell you they loved you, or they didn't communicate that well to you, uh, and they had one of those sacred roles in your life, you know, one of those roles in your life that God has given them to be a picture of what his love looks like, to be a reflection, to start to show you the shadows of what the perfect love looks like, and that person who had one of those sacred roles um, didn't reflect that, then, then they let you down. Then they let you down. But it doesn't mean that that love isn't there, and it doesn't mean that there isn't a love worthy of our worship and worthy of our life And that's why this is so important. And that's why we want to keep talking about it and looking at it and making sure we really understand a proper shape because it's been hijacked so often. Uh, And then last week, last week we talked about the fact that love is not based on convenience and compatibility, right? Like you can, okay, well, this is great. We talked about love kind of being this contract where, okay, you do your part, I'll do my part. But if somebody doesn't do their part, well, that's going to violate the contract. We talked about it more as a, as a covenant. We talked about it more as this uh, steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed love, right, and this ongoing love that never fails. And specifically, we see that, and really only perfectly, we see that in how God loves those who have put their faith in him. So we talked for the first couple weeks about kind of these big picture flybys of what love is. Tonight we're gonna get a little bit more specific, a little bit more applicable in some ways of how to do that, of of how love works and how we should use it and how it should be used on us in in some ways. But let me tell you, this whole series is so, it's been so challenging for me guys, because there's like 90 things I wanna tell you right now. Like there's a there's like a 50% 50% chance this sermon's gonna be about four hours. We'll see. Um, yeah, there's just so many things in it. And, and honestly, there's been so many things in the study preparing for these sermons the last you know, six weeks or so that have been really changing and challenging and convicting me, uh, which has been a blessing. Um, but it is just gonna be, it's gonna be a, a rock that we're just gonna skip off the idea of love. And yet I'm praying that the Lord, I'm praying the Holy Spirit will really shape. And for some of you guys, bring healing. And for some of you guys in this series, really start to look at love and look at the Father's love of what it's supposed to actually be and then also know how to practice it. So so as we kind of step into the how a little bit more, here's the premise that I'm gonna take biblically for tonight. I believe, and I'm gonna push forward biblically, that love is a tool, that love is a tool to use to shape others and for others to shape us to look more like Christ. That love is a tool that is used by others to shape us To look like Jesus, and that we are to use to the world around us. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to run us through kind of this big chunk of scripture, and we're going to move through it, and then we're going to get to this tool. And it's got these kind of two edges to it, and we're going to just spin it back and forth and look at it and talk about what that looks like in our life and how we apply it and misapply it. So Ephesians 4 is where we're going. Ephesians 4, 1 through 7, if you got your Bible, uh, it's kind of towards the back. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat. But also, we're just going to throw them up on the board. So uh, up on the screens, they'll be there. If that's easier and less distracting for you, than just read it off the screen. Hey, also, I want to make a note too. We've got a phone number on that screen. Uh, next week, I'm preaching one more kind of specific on love, which I think is, honestly, I think it's the most important one. I think all of these sermons lead to next week. And to not understand what we're going to really talk about next week um, is, is really going to be kind of impossible to really love well. And so there's that next week, but the week after that, What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get up here and I'm gonna preach a sermon really based on any questions you have over the previous four or five weeks. So any questions tonight that you think of or things you disagree with or things you need more clarity on or things that maybe you hear me talk about in a broad sense and you say, okay, great, that makes kind of broad sense of how it's, but how does that apply to this area of my life? And you want us to zoom in. That last sermon is just gonna be us interacting with those questions. So text in any questions you have or comments or... I hate you, or whatever it is, uh, all throughout the sermon. And I will cry myself to sleep and work through it. Um, okay, Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. Uh, I'm going I'm to take a big bite here. I'm going to read it all, and then we're going to slow down and kind of chop it up. Paul says this. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So stop right there. Um, let, let's slow down a bit and, uh, and take this in some bites. Paul, right off the bat, says, Hey, I, therefore, a prisoner, am urging you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which you've been called. So Paul is sitting in prison and he's writing to these people he loved in Ephesus. And anytime we, as Christians, uh, if you're a Christian in this room and you're reading the Bible and you hear an apostle say, Man, I am urging you to do this so that you might walk in the manner in which you're called. Our ears should perk up. Our ears should perk up because what we know what the Lord is doing is he is about to reveal to us what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to walk in a way worthy of him. And we should lean in and we should say, yes, Jesus, tell me, and he will. Look at verse 2. With all humility, this is what it looks like. With all humility, gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Don't miss these characteristics as great churchy words. This is, these are characteristics that should shape our posture in how it looks to live out our calling in the way that, that we are called to, in a way that's worthy to the Lord. Paul goes on, right, in, in 4 and 5, he goes on in that whole, he uses the one word like a dozen times. Right, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father. What's happening here is Paul's saying, hey, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've been called to. And there's some characteristics, some posture that should go along with it. And then for these two verses, he starts talking about the unity that should be there, right? We're in this together. Paul makes it really clear. We are in this together. There's something it's something we don't really practice that well in this modern version of Christianity that we live in. But the idea of unity of the body, that we are a part of one body, one church under one God submitted, we don't really practice that. Uh, we kind of customize our faith experience however we want, right? Let me explain. Um, there, is a, there is kind of something that happens, and I'm super guilty of this uh, in my own heart and in my own mind and certainly all throughout just being a young adult, where we kind of enjoy the Christian buffet, And so the idea of us submitting to one community and one body, we kind of trade that in for single-serving Christianity. And by that, I mean we can just kind of have our own little personal thing, and we don't have to really interact with other people. We don't have to be vulnerable. We don't have to be committed. There's no real covenant involved in our relationship with other believers. We just kind of hop in and out where it's convenient, where it's fun, wherever our emotions lead us, and that's kind of how we do it. I actually um, I heard a story recently about uh, a young woman who I believe is in Christ and loves Jesus, and she was in, in one of our ministries here at the church. And, and she bounced out of it, and she decided to start going to another church, which isn't, isn't the end of the world, and, man, that, that's not bad. But one of our associate pastors was like, hey, so, you know, you were pretty plugged in here. You were known. You know, what, what, you know, what was it that kind of drew you to this other church? And she said, well, you know, I love that I can come, and, like, I know everyone there, and they all know me, and, like, we all kind of know our stuff. And, you know, and that's, and that, but, but when I go to this other church, I can sit in the back, and no one knows me. No one knows me, and it's just me and God the whole time. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. To which case, I would say, sweet sister, I think you're missing what the point of the body of Christ is supposed to be. You should have a sweet, personal relationship with the Lord that's not just contingent on a crutch of other people. But the idea of church to go somewhere to say, I want to go somewhere I can sit by myself and be alone, as if the Holy Spirit isn't there in your quiet time in the morning or, or in the evening or, or whenever you pull over and you're at a coffee shop and you get your Bible out and you Instagram it. Like the Holy Spirit is there also, right? Until you post it. And then once it gets over seven likes, the Holy Spirit leaves. And it's like, nope, you got your reward. I'm out of here. That's kind of how it works. Right? So this idea, this idea of unity, right? That we should be a part of the body. We should be a part of the body. We sh- that's, why we, that's why we preach our announcements, right? That's why it's, to us it's such a big deal. We don't actually care about what we, we don't care about just you being in a home group for the sake of a spreadsheet that gets filled for us. We care about you being in a home group because we think you are designed to be a part of a body that, that is known. And that's going to become really clear in this sermon, really clear in this sermon. We want you to go to afterward, not just because we want to entice you to sound embarrassing at karaoke. We want you to go because we want you to feel connected we want you to be connected. We want to know you. We want to hear your story. We want to walk with you. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be doing. And yeah, that takes time, right? It's not instant gratification. That takes time. And so I would encourage you to, to be faithful. If you're not known, if you're plugged in somewhere else, great. Praise God. I hope this is an encouragement on Wednesday nights. But if you're not plugged in, get plugged in and get known. Go on the Belize trip, man. You go on the Belize trip, you're screwed, man. You're You're done. Like, everyone's gonna know you, they're gonna know, I mean, you're just gonna be sweating next to people for an entire week, and then sitting on a dock, worshiping, everyone's gonna know exactly what your, like, B.O. type is, because you're all just gonna be sweaty and gross, and man, you're gonna, you're gonna leave that trip having 54 other brothers and sisters who you just walked with for a week, man. If you wanna, if you wanna really jump in the deep end, join us on that. Okay, so verse seven. Verse seven is so important. He says, Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God's grace, right? God's grace is this gift we don't deserve. God's grace has brought us into this unity with other people. And now look at this, verses 4 through 13. Skip down a couple of verses. Let me show you something. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, And teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, he gave these gifts, he gave these different perspectives, he's raised up other leaders. Friends in this room, brothers and sisters in this room, if you're in Christ, make no mistake, it's here in this verse, God is very clear with the will that he has for your life. So as you wrestle with the question of, man, what is God's will for my life? Now, what does God want for my life? Make no mistake, God's will for your life, what he wants is for you, it says right here, to mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's will for your life is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. God's will for your life is that he would shape you to look more like Jesus. That's what God wants for you. That's what's glorifying to him. That is where you will be the most satisfied in your life. God's will for your life is that you look more like him. And he has provided this this thing. He's provided this community with one spirit and one body and under one God and Father to help do that. And he has provided a tool of love in a specific way to help sharpen and shape that. We're called to shape that into others. We're called to have that shape of looking more and more like Christ into our own life. So look at the, these last two verses here in Paul's thought here. He says in verse 14 so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, hold on to that, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. There are two big tools that God uses, that the church uses, to shape other believers, ourselves, and the culture around us. These tools are designed only to be used together, not separated. They're, they're tools that, that make up part of this correct shape of love. And they're the tools of truth and grace, both together combined, not just simply truth and not just simply grace, but the combination of what it looks like to love somebody with truth and grace. So I'm going to start with grace. Ephesians 4, 7, in this passage we just read, it said, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Ephesians two eight nine says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Colossians 4.6, also written by Paul, says, man, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It is foundational. Grace is foundational to our relationship with God and to our relationship to other believers. And here's what it looks like. It looks like, um, it looks like a church uh, that hired and allows to continue a, a man to continue to stay on staff and preach on Wednesday nights who is a very imperfect 34-year-old pastor who has not arrived and, and still wrestles with sin and tries to bring sin into the light uh, and falls short lots of times. And it looks like a, an elder board in a church that has said, we know, we love you, we're showing you grace, we want to continue to walk with you and, and pull me towards sanctification. It looks like a wife who married an idiot Who continues to love and be patient and be kind and be this picture of grace that I I don't deserve. It looks like uh, people who have sinned against you, looking at their sin and forgiveness, giving them something they don't deserve because of the depth of their sin. Uh, It looks like seeing other people in sin and instead of looking with judgment, it looks like having compassion on them. Spoiler alert, it looks like Jesus. right? That's what it looks like. There's a story um, where Jesus uh, is going through his day, being Jesus, son of God, incarnate, uh, deity, and and these religious people drag this woman. They drag this woman naked, essentially naked, and throw her down before Jesus. Some of you guys have heard this story. Throw her down, and they say, Jesus, this woman, this woman who at this point has just got to be covered in not only filth, but just shame, shame. Shame that she probably wears even greater than just the filth that she got dragged through a city with. Being interrupted, having sex with a married man, and in the middle of that got pulled out into the street in front of the Son of God. And these religious people say, this woman was caught in adultery. We caught her. And they've got stones in their hand ready to stone her. And they they quote, we know this is wrong, we know this is sin, we know this is worthy of death because sin is worthy of death. And they're looking at Jesus, and they're looking for his response, and they know that he is the one, or at least they're testing to see if he is the one, to see if he'll back up this truth, right? And he says this, this famous line, I think we take out of context a lot, but he says this line, and he says, man, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. And that's just a mic drop moment, right? You has got this woman there who, who biblically, right, because of the weight of her sin, yeah, probably deserved death in some way, and yet the God of the universe, perfect and righteous and holy, stood before this woman and told her accusers, he who is without sin can cast the first stone, and one by one they dropped their stones and left. And then he, then he bent down and he said, go and sin no more. Then he bent down and he took that woman's face who had been covered in such shame and then experienced such grace, and he said, go and sin no more, and we're gonna get back to that. Uh, That's what grace looks like. That's the grace of our our Lord. That's a picture of it. Followers of Christ should be using this tool of grace in those around us, right? It's a massive part of the shape of God's love in your life, it's grace. Um, What you, by definition, what you, by definition, don't deserve, and yet, there it is. We don't deserve it, and yet here it is, and it's beautiful, and it's changing, and it's amazing, the grace of our God. But, um, but here comes a major misunderstanding. Here comes the, the pivot here, because grace, grace without truth isn't love. It's just tolerance. Let me say that again. Grace without truth, it isn't actually love at all. It's just tolerance, and here's what I mean by that. Um, tolerance is just kind of this idea that, well, uh, my, my threshold will get larger to be able to handle more. So when we think of it in the context of pain tolerance, well, my pain tolerance will increase. So it doesn't actually mean I'm removing pain. It just means, yeah, I'm kind of getting thicker skin and I'm able to handle more and more and more. Well, that's, that's not what grace does, right? There's nothing healing there with tolerance, right? It's just a greater capacity. But grace is not just being able to take it. Grace is forgiveness and healing and receiving fully a gift I don't deserve. But with tolerance, it's just kind of overlooking or accepting something that's maybe not healthy or beneficial to you. And, and so often, if we're tolerant people or, or friends of ours are tolerant people, there can be kind of this level of pride attached to it, right? We kind of get this pride of like, man, I'm, I'm a more tolerant person than that person. And, and we, that kind of starts to be this badge that we wear in our culture. And I know you've seen it. Our culture has swapped those words. They've swapped love for tolerance. It's been hijacked. So often when our culture says you're not loving, what they mean is you're not tolerant. But what we're seeing is that that's not actually love at all. Um, We get real prideful, too, with that. I uh, tease my wife all the time that her pain tolerance is maybe the lowest of any human being in the entire world. (laughs) Especially when it comes to cold. We could be on a nice date to Olive Garden. We walk outside to the car, step outside. It could be 51 degrees and my wife crumples, right? Crumples because it's paralyzingly cold. And I wonder, did some sort of, like, poisonous insect inject some sort of venom in her veins and she just is in the fetal position and I have to get the manager from Olive Garden to scoop her off the ground and <laughs> carry her to the car, right? Because it's too painfully cold. I don't know where my wife is in this audience right now, but um, it's just too painfully cold, right? Um, so, yeah, okay, I got her. Um <laughs> right? And so we, I tease her and I say, babe, babe, your pain tolerance is remarkably low, right? And then she reminds me that she has given birth to two children. And then I tell her about this one time that I was really constipated. And then I, and, and then I just sleep on the couch. No, and then, no, and then what happens is because of the grace of my amazing wife, she welcomes me back into our marriage bed because she is gracious and loving and kind. Uh, and for the record, too, because I live with this beautiful woman, she has an incredible pain tolerance guy. She's got, like, a messed up, like, slipped disc and, like, all kinds of broken bones, and she fights through it. She's amazing. So just let the record, let the recording show it. Just kidding, babe. You're a stud. She is. Okay, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. Grace without truth is not love, right? It's it's just tolerance. And that's not what we're shooting for as a biblical concept of what we want to do and how we want to enter in to the culture around us, to the other believers around us. We don't want to step in with tolerance. We want to step in with grace and truth. And here's an example. If my son, who's three years old right now, Charlie, if he decided to take up smoking, let's say he decided to take up smoking as an adult, because it's weird if he took it up at three. (laughs) And I would probably have, like, some authority over him. But let's say as, a, as an adult, he takes up smoking, right? I assume there's plenty of you guys in this room that smoke, right? And that's okay. And there's grace for that, right? Right? Like, I don't care. Like, that doesn't personally offend me. However, the truth is that's going to kill you, right? So the truth is that, like, by smoking, like, if my son was smoking, there would be a level of truth that I would balance to say, I don't want my son to smoke. This is destructive, Him smoking is going to remove life from him, right? His days will be most likely cut shorter. There's a good possibility of it. Or even uh, the quality of his life could be severely damaged. And because I I hold that truth, and I understand that truth, and I believe that truth, I hold that, but also he's my son, and I love him, right? And so I don't say, you aren't a part of my family, and I don't love you, and I, I," right? And and so we balance that in this... this, this posture, right? And so out of love, I would say, man, I don't want that because I think it's destructive, but okay, let's walk through that, and it's not going to affect my affection for you. It's not going to affect how I love you. It's not going to affect how I care for you, all of those things. We've got to fight for what is truth, though, and we've got to dig in. And so just the idea of we have truth, that's something that... Some of these areas, we've got to really wrestle with. What is truth? What's the truthful perspective? What's the right perspective in all these things? And I don't mean to simplify that, but certainly don't have time to get into all of that in this sermon. We recognize that there is subjective truth also, right? Subjectively, right? Somebody might say that the chicken chalupa from Taco Bell is amazing, right? Whereas I might say it's the worst thing since ISIS, right? And those are subjective opinions, right? But subjective. However, we are going to function in a way, as, a, as certainly as this church, where there is objective truth also. Yet we're living in a society that doesn't necessarily always agree with that. But we're going to step in and say, well, there's some things that we can objectively say, yes, this is right, this is wrong, this is sin, this is not sin, this is brokenness, this is what healing looks like, and we should be able to objectively step into those things. If, um, if this half of the room said, Made the, the argument that this bottle has water in it. And this half of the room said, nope, this bottle does not have water in it. And I said, you're both right. Then we know I'm wrong, right? We can kind of investigate and start struggle. Well, is there water? It looks like there's water. Maybe it's a reflection of the light, and let's dig in and figure it out. But we know right off the bat. But so often in our society, we get that, right? Hey, you know what? You think there's water in it. You guys think there's not. You're both right. And there's a level of almost intellectual arrogance with that that sometimes we attach and say, hey, if they want to think it's... and if they There's got to be objective truth that we hold on to. And we can debate and walk the line and figure out, okay, what is objective and what is subjective? And, and obviously we have to do that if we want to be believers moving forward in this society. Uh, there is a right and wrong. There is broken and healthy. There is a sinful path and a path that brings God glory. So we should love people and speak into their lives. Speak truth into their lives. Um, there is... On the cover of the National Geographic of January of this year, there is a picture of a nine-year-old boy who is has uh, uh, identified himself as transgender. Uh, and the National Geographic is all about uh, what that looks like and gender issues in America. And man... Those are serious and sensitive and shouldn't be taken lightly and shouldn't be approached arrogantly. Um, but it's a nine-year-old boy who, um, who believes he's a girl and, and is starting to identify as a girl. And so walking through that and his parents walking through that and what it looks like for him to transition. Um, and I think there's a, a voice out there that would say, well, man, if, if they think they're a girl, then just let them be a girl. And I think we as believers have to look to truth and say, man, man, is that actually maybe some brokenness, right? There's a lot of brokenness in my life. And as a nine-year-old, there was a lot of brokenness. And I was born into a lot of brokenness. And I was born with leanings that were broken. But is it maybe actually more, is it maybe too easy at times to say, man, let them, let them be what they want to be. And how do we navigate that? And does that mean, well, okay, we're just not going to take a, take a stance on that. And I'm not going to have a, an objective perspective from the truth that we look at and the truth that we hold, maybe this kid is broken, like all of us. Maybe as the church, there needs to be a level of compassion in stepping in, and how can we love, and how can we counsel, and how can we walk with? How can we shepherd? Man, those of you who are and have struggled or have known people who wrestle with alcohol, right? People who really wrestle with alcoholism, and I know that's touched a lot of lives in this room, personally and and second-person Man, if, if one of you, if a brother or sister in Christ can't go to sleep at night until they are just drunk and they, they need that alcohol to put them to sleep and they need that alcohol throughout the day to allow them to, to numb from the pain, we, we should look at that and say, well, the truth would be that that's damaging and destructive. We don't look at that and say, well... That's what they want to do. Let them do that, right? Just as long as they're not driving and they're getting an Uber and they're being responsible about it. No, we should look at that and say, no, that's brokenness and destruction and that's going to suck life away from them and that's not their design and we should speak truth into that. Remember what we're called to be and do. Verses 14 and 15 in chapter four, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind and doctrine and human cunning by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15: Rather, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking truth into lies is what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ. But wait. Remember when I said, grace without, without truth is not love, it's tolerance. Um Truth without grace is also not love, right? If we, if we just take this position of, well, this is where I stand on this issue and this issue and this is what this is, and there's not grace attached to that, that's not love either. It's not tolerance. It's, I would say it's something much worse. It looks a lot more like hate, right? It looks like, it looks like condemnation with no hope. It looks like legalism and the, the law thrown on people, and it looks like lack of compassion. It doesn't look like Christ. Truth without grace is not love. You see some kid on a magazine who is struggling with identity issues, and your heart doesn't break for that, then we don't understand the gospel. Right? If we see a kid on a magazine and think, oh my gosh, what's going on? That's crazy. And our heart doesn't break and see ourselves and all the brokenness that we got saved from, if we see brokenness and our heart doesn't break from it, then we're not really understanding or certainly not walking in any kind of understanding of the gospel of grace that's been shown to us. Man, if you are pro-life, praise God. Man, that's because of what I study in Scripture. and where That's where I land too. So unapologetically, I land in the pro-life camp. I believe that, that somewhere before birth and in, around conception, Life, God has given inherent life to babies in the womb and that that's valuable and, and that's God-ordained and that's something beautiful that God has designed, right? So I believe that stance is, is true. But man, have, have we walked with women who have had abortions? Do we know how hard it is to raise a baby by ourselves or to raise a baby in poverty? Or to carry a baby for nine months and then give it away to adoption? Do we know, do we have compassion on that? Do we look at that and is there truth mixed with this posture of grace? Or do we just take our truth category and wave it and hold it up and say, this is right, this is true, this is is what it should be. Because uh, yeah, we can support all of these arguments and yeah, you might be right. But if it doesn't have grace attached to it, it's not love. It's just condemnation with no hope. It's just throwing stones is what it is. Believers speak truth, but remember those characteristics. Remember those characteristics? With all humility, in verse 2 and 3, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Man, I heard a story, a true story, and I think think she's in the room. It was her mom who uh, waited outside of abortion clinics, and this was decades ago. And there was a woman, and she would try to start conversations and try to love people well and try to enter into these conversations with grace. And she met a woman walking into an abortion clinic to get an abortion. And she said, I will help you raise your baby. And that woman turned around, and they got in the car together, and they left. And that woman helped her raise her baby. And the woman I know in this room grew up with that woman's baby as like a sister in her life. Man, that's awesome, That's truth and grace, man. That's radical. That's Jesus stuff. We don't throw stones because it's not understanding grace. We don't go to social media and pick fights and rub truth in other people's face because, yes, we might be right. But is that loving? And if it doesn't have those characteristics and if it doesn't have a humility to it and a a walking with people and and a grace attached to it, then what is it that we're communicating? We're just communicating condemnation. And you know that I'm saying, hear me say, we stand on truth. We fight for it, and and truth that's unpopular, and truth that's going to make enemies, and truth that, yes, is going to offend people. And that's where we stand, but we do it in a different way. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, he talks about that our judgment shouldn't even be directed to those who are lost in the world around us. It's for believers that we should be judging and calling out sin and, and really having those conversations with. We're ruining our witness with a posture that doesn't look like Christ so often. And I'm I'm right there with you. But so often when we do those things and we lead with truth without grace, truth it is, but without grace, we're misshaping for people what Jesus looks like in our culture. And people are now waking up in an era, lost people who don't know Jesus, they're waking up in an era where they think Jesus is a homophobic, bigot, Republican. And that would be funny if it wasn't so freaking sad. Because to not know Jesus or be able to recognize him is death. Where's our humility? Yes, we stand on truth. Okay, I just talked a lot about how to dish it out. I want to kind of cover two more things as we land this plane. Um, Yes, how we dish it out. How we have a posture of truth and grace. How we use that tool. But I want to talk real quickly about how we receive it as Christians. Okay, this is our posture moving forward, but how do we receive it as Christians? Let me tell you how. How how at least I, I want to. I don't think I do a good job of this all the time, but how we want to. We crave it. We should crave truth. We should lean into it. We should find ourselves in a community of people who understand the gospel of grace and, and put ourselves in there in a steadfast covenant kind of way where we can't bounce when it gets hard and bounce when it gets awkward and bounce when we see something better and more comfortable. And we put ourselves in that community and we allow them to speak truth into our life and we allow them to speak into the blind spots in our life. We don't run from it. And when it gets hard and awkward and when people say things that we don't like, we don't run from it because we recognize this as love and maybe even they say it to us in a Christian context and they're jerks about it. Right, And I get it. And maybe they're not very good at the, the grace side of it. But if they're a believer and they're still pointing, maybe there's some truth to it. And maybe that does push us to look more like Christ, which is the whole goal. That's God's will for us. And so we crave it. And we seek out people who will speak truth into our life, who, yes, understand the gospel of grace. But we put ourselves in those relationships in the body of Christ. And we let them speak into our life. And we speak into other people's lives Otherwise, we're missing out on what verse 15 said of growing to be more like Christ. Uh, I have so many stories, and I'm not going to get into, of amazing men that I've gotten to, and women that I've gotten to sit across from, and uh, attemptedly, and I, maybe I wasn't always good at this, but attempted to try to speak truth into their life with a lot of pushback. And, and a lot of people say, man, I, I have been accused a lot in my life of, man, you don't understand grace, you don't understand how to love people when I try to speak into those hard areas, and I get it, it's hard to receive. I have been on the other side of that table so many times. People who loved me enough to call out my sin, and there are still gonna be plenty of other times where I'm sitting on that end of the table, and somebody like Josh or Tyler or one of you is sitting on the other side saying, Ben, there's a blind spot here. Ben, there's sin here that you've gotta see, and I've got truth here to show you you're walking towards something that's dangerous. Man, how bad of a father, how unloving of a father would I be if I didn't speak into the sin pockets that I see in my three-year-old's life as he grows older. See areas where, son, if you keep walking down this road, there's going to be brokenness and there's going to be hurt and there's going to be damage. And then seeing repentance and having an ocean of grace waiting for him, seeing him turn and change and start to acknowledge and see his own sin. Do you know why it's so hard to receive it? Certainly this is true for me. It is hard to receive truth from the people around us because we don't think we're that broken. We don't actually think we're that broken, right? We've forgotten how sinful we can be. We don't realize and acknowledge the depths of our sin. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities. Another word for sin, our iniquities like the wind, take us away. We forget that. Man, we start, we start thinking we're actually pretty spotless on our own. We, we're doing pretty good, actually. We've kind of deceived ourselves in that way and so we're surprised, we're surprised when somebody holds up a mirror to us and we see sin that we didn't realize was there and it surprises us because we forget this truth that no, we're in, in and of ourselves, without the grace of God transforming us, no, we've got some major Potholes, we got some major blind spots, we got some major sin in our life, but we're surprised by it. Or maybe we're not surprised. Maybe you know how broken you are, but you just don't know that others can see it. And you have become a master of hiding your own sin so they can't see it. And then when they do start to see it, it scares you because it replays all the times that people have abandoned you or pushed you away or, or shoved you away or rejected you because of that. And you don't want to feel that pain again. So you're going to keep putting up walls, keep putting up masks real love has truth and grace i can't go into how it looks we'll do this in the last sermon but that should play itself out in romantic relationships in our church community in our friendships in our home groups that should play itself out in our lives with the friends around us and let me mention this one last stumbling block hurdle for us to receive this it's hypocrisy and here's what happens someone calls me out in sin it's happened plenty of times and i do one of two things he says that, and I think, who is he to say that about me? <laughs> he who is about to sin cast the first stone, man. i take that fully out of context, put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, man, who are you? You've got said, Well, what about this and this and this? And so then what we do is we start to invalidate all the other sinners so that we're safe and so that no one else can speak truth into our life, and so it protects us from not looking more like Christ. That's what truth should be doing. It should be revealing and chiseling. And yes, that's hard. And so we say, well, that person's a hypocrite, so I don't have to receive anything from them. That person's a hypocrite, so I don't need to hear their truth. Well, they're not doing that. Well, they didn't do that very well. Well, I heard last week that they did this. And it invalidates them. And we use that as a shield. Brothers and sisters, don't do that. Don't do that. Right? Telling my own soul, don't do that. I tear other people down in my mind to raise myself up, so that I don't have to be as vulnerable. But all you're doing is you're avoiding maturity and growth and God's will for your life. Or maybe, brothers and sisters, you are paralyzed in speaking truth into someone's life because you feel like a hypocrite. And you're saying, man, who am I? Who am I to tell this person about this sin? And and maybe that holds you back. We're all hypocrites. I I think hypocrisy sucks, but I also think it's really overrated when it starts to paralyze us or become a defensive shield to where we don't receive any other truth. We're all hypocrites. We've all sinned. If if you had a problem with receiving truth from hypocritical sinners, then the attendance of Renovates is going to start plummeting. Because I I'm a sinner. Right? I'm a sinner and I wrestle with all these things and I get up here and I preach and I try to be used by the Holy Spirit to speak truth and Josh when he preaches and Tyler and And we want to be used by the Holy Spirit, but yeah, it's not about us. It's about seeing past that and seeing to the Lord because the gospel has given us that authority because the perfect picture of love and truth and grace is the truth that we are condemned, the truth that we are condemned and we deserve. We are the woman dragged in front of Jesus who deserves the stones and the wrath of God deserved to be poured out on all of us. And Christ hung on that cross and took the stones and took the wrath of God, which he did not deserve. The one one non-hypocrite in the entire world, the one speaker of truth who wasn't being a hypocrite when he spoke truth and spoke about godliness and spoke about the perfection that we are to go and push and strive for, the one non-hypocrite, and he hung on a cross and died for the hypocrites of the world to put their faith in him and rose again conquering that. That's the gospel. That's what gives us the authority to step in, to love our brothers and sisters with truth and grace. Let me pray over you. Father, we love you. We love you for how you loved us. First, you are so good to us. Lord, would we would we be challenged, God? Would we see this call to be people who love with, with yes, your truth? That we call sin, sin, that we can identify sin as sin, but also mixed with this beautiful posture of grace. God, that takes a discerning of the Holy Spirit. It's not a formula that works for all relationships. God, would you make us a people that is discerning in how to walk that line, Father, what that looks like in our church communities and our relationships. Give us courage to speak truth with grace. Give us compassion for those around us. And God, give us the security, Lord, to stand on the foundation of your love and your acceptance so that we might receive hard truth from other people. So that when other people stand before us and might love us enough to say something hard, God, that we would stand on the security of you and your love for us, your steadfast love. We could stand on that and receive it and be changed and be transformed to look a little bit more like you. We love you, we want to look more like you.